ever wanted to work in the gaming industry? He's here to tell you why that's a bad idea. It's Behind the Line Radio with your host, Kinetic. And it starts now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Behind the Line Radio. Today, we don't have Jeff with us as co-host, but I do have Lorenzo coming back again. How are you doing today, Lorenzo? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and Lorenzo's here because we are talking about the changes to Steam Greenlight, or now is going to be called Steam Direct when that gets fully rolled out. Um, and to start off, I mean, for anyone who hasn't heard about this yet, I mean, uh, I suppose if you're not too plugged into it, you might have missed it. Uh, Greenlight was, or is, the Steam pipeline, I suppose you'd call it, for smaller developers to um, submit their games for public approval. If you got enough approval from enough end users, they would allow the game to be sold on the store. This had some problems where, I suppose, the, the most straightforward version was... Creators putting together really lame, crappy stuff and just handing out free keys to get votes so they could get on the storefront and hopefully make a few bucks. So that seems almost predictable how gaming people would try to game the system. But <laughs> this was intended to open the game, the market up so that everything wasn't through a big old bottleneck of manual approval. Now, Lorenzo, you've had some experience with uh, submitting through Steam, and so that's why you're here. And uh, if you could sort of walk us through some of your experiences with the platform. Uh, actually, I haven't had too much experience submitting through Steam. I actually, um, uh, when I when I got started, I was working on a a mod called which just came out with a with a new ver- new update recently. But I was I was on very early on in a just helping out with animation and some design. Um, and this is before the days of, uh, of Greenlight. So I don't have too much experience with Greenlight, but I do have a lot of experience from the publisher side. Sure, and sure. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, cool. I, I, I didn't mean to imply that you were working with Greenlight. I meant the, uh, yeah, yeah. more experience with the standard work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and I feel there, and I feel there a lot of their pain with, with, uh, Greenlight. So what was the, what was the question against specifically? Oh, just, uh, explaining your, um, experiences with the platform in general yeah i mean steam is just one of those many platforms um that 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 publishers well okay i come from the perspective of a larger public of larger publishers that um we often feel that we need to publish to because there's such a fast growing strong audience but at the same time that audience is um is so enticing that that world is so enticing that virtually every publish large publisher now has uh developed their own you know, wannabe Steam. <laughs> you know, you have Origin for EA, you have Blizzard's platform, um, you have Arc's platform for Neverwinter, you have uh, um, Tryon's. I mean, everybody has, everybody and their mother has their own platform. They want to copy that now. They but, even know, made it an option in Game Dev Tycoon. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Make you build your own platform. <laughs> yeah, and you don't get revenue from other people selling stuff on your platform. It's just right. a thing. Right. But, <laughs> you know, it, it's enticing because Steam takes a large cut. I believe it's like 30%. Which is pretty um, standard for a portal, though, isn't it? No, no, it's totally standard. It's yeah. totally standard. But if you can get around it and it's on PC, I mean, 
with, with you know, we're very, also very experienced, you know, you and I doing, you know, Apple and Android pl- uh, mm-hmm. mobile platform publishing. And it's kind of understandable why um, there's a 30% cut there because you're going into their ecosystem, which is a very unique ecosystem. But on PC, you would think like it's a free for all. Anybody can can publish on PC. Why should I go through Steam and pay a 30% cut? Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think everybody wants to try to avoid it. It is certainly a consideration because you have, let, let's, let's pretend like you make a, a game using a, an engine that has another royalty cut, like Unreal. That's another 30% cut. So you have 30% cut there. You have a 30% cut, you know, publishing the Steam. You don't get much at the end of the day, right? And this is all very low margin business as we've talked about before. So, yeah. um, so, you know, what the, what, what Greenlight did was basically provide a indie publishing path, um, away from the large publishers. And, um, and, uh, and I think it was immensely successful doing so, especially when you compare to like the Xbox, what was the Xbox one called? Oh, uh, uh, I don't remember the, well, there's Xbox Live Arcade and there was, yeah. Um, Arcade. Yeah, okay. I think it was arcade. So arcade and there's another one though. X, Xbox had another like green light equivalent. Some indie, um, it had an indie in it, I think. Yeah, something like that. But I, I don't feel it was very successful and it's, um, and, and that's for different reasons because the console is a much more uh, difficult platform to reach than PC, right? But <clears throat> I think they accomplished their goals and they said so much in their statement when they switched from green light to, di- to direct. Um, but you want to talk a little bit about direct and how uh, we can talk about how that's going? Sure. I mean, the, um, well, actually before that, one of the things I wanted to point out was, uh, how some of this just makes sense when you look into how, uh, steam and valve, just how their whole, um, <coughs> business and structure and management functions, because apparently you work on whatever you want, whenever you want to. So the projects that get effort put onto them are the ones that strike people's fancy that day. Yeah, Steam is a very, I mean, it's not Steam. Valve is a very uh, flat company, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know too many people there, but it's very flat. And it's got a almost, uh, it's like less evil Netflix, <laughs> where, where you know, Netflix has this mentality too. It's like, you know, survival the fittest, um, you know, you work on, you work on, you promote and work on whatever you want. Uh, but to stay relevant, you need to do things that are interesting. And, but once something interesting pops up, everybody will aggregate upon it. So you potentially could be working like a bajillion things at once. Um, sort of more R&D-esque. Uh, or, or if you want to be, you know, more pessimistic, like I always think of Netflix as like Battle Royale. <laughs> you're, you're on an island with a bunch of other people and it's like survivor um so yeah so that's that that's the philosophy they come from of this like very grassrootsy bottom-up approach yeah and so steam direct is quite different because it's going to be very top-down well i mean the kind of uh the the whole the whole effort between from uh how it was to green light to direct makes sense to me in that light because I, I even saw a quote something about they'd come in one day and they'd have 400 great games that they needed to get through and there but they didn't have the bandwidth to curate all of that themselves yep. so they have to say okay let's pick 10 <clears throat> right so they have to they it makes sense if you take that management style as a given and relatively limited resources because you know, I would imagine they actually have enough revenue that they could just pay people to do it. 
but that's not the approach they want to take. So they want to have something that's both automated and uh, infinitely scalable. Right. So they set up something like Greenlight, which allows you to um, just bypass that manual approval bottleneck. But they didn't, again, it's, you know, gamers gaming the system. Weird stuff will happen, whether or not you would consider this to have been predictable. But even without gaming the system, you know, it's yeah. a, quite a flawed system. And um, my, my complaint about uh, Valve and Steam goes beyond just green lighting. Like, as a whole, again, bringing up the Netflix comparison, as a whole, their recommendation system has never... To me, never felt nearly as good. The algorithm, I don't know what, you mean? what it is about their algorithms or their implementation or their presentation, but it's just, it's quite poor. Um, discovery is quite poor given how much content they have. Um, I don't feel like Steam Direct is going to be changing that much, but especially with Greenlight, it's like you mentioned, like they were, pu- they were pushing out, I think anywhere from 100 to 200, uh, Greenlight games per two weeks, every yeah. batch they push out. Sometimes, two, three times that. Um, there's no way you can maintain quality, so they relied heavily on uh, you know, popularity and, 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 and voting. But, of course, people are going to brigade, whether intentional or not, people are going to brigade you know, uh, shit games. Yeah. You know, it just happens, right? It's like the deviant art of gaming. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> I suppose that's one way to put it. Um, yeah, I... D- discoverability is always going to be a really tricky topic, especially something that's at least intended to cover the entire ecosystem of PC gaming or, you know, targets to do that. Right. So it's just so huge. Finding what you want is going to be difficult. At least, I don't know if this will be successful, but at least it seems that they're putting effort in the correct place to address some of these things. And only time will tell how effective it is. They're talking about updating the algorithm for surfacing things. Uh-huh. Uh, and the, I don't know, ever debated controversial uh, application fee. <clears throat> uh, and uh, updating the uh, curators. What's uh, updating the curators? So you, you, you do know the, the uh, curators option. Do you know that one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's going to be... They were talking about changes to that, and they call it um, uh, Steam Explorers. And there would be – they were talking about some incentives to give people to participate in this. But they would go through and check titles and sort of either rate them or approve them or, like, if you were putting them on your curator list. And that would, in turn, affect the algorithm. So well, You're saying players would do that, right? Yes. Uh, uh, players – Okay. could do that they would sign up for the program there would probably be some form of uh verification going on there as well but i i don't believe last i heard there was no details on that one but you know those people that you see as curators would probably anyone there could probably have their um an explorer thing but there were also uh additional uh little perks in there like for a developer to be able to automatically within the system hand a key to a reviewer to request a review of their game rather than having to, say, handle it themselves and email a key to them or something like that. Right. So it can all be handled within the storefront. 
So a lot of that speaks to trying to fix or improve the algorithm for discoverability, which in turn goes back to what I was saying before about them trying to automate things so they don't have a manual bottleneck. Mm, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't have a good feeling about any of those changes. I don't feel any of those really address um, their problems, and I don't feel like um, they even know entirely what they... This is like a very weak rollout, in my opinion, of, mm. of like a new um, publishing uh, pipeline. Because they're so vague on details, uh, they don't, they, 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 they're very, they, they feel like they're indecisive. It feels like they're indecisive. Um, the, the lack of like, uh, clarity on what the fee will be, for example, is, is, is very bad, right? I mean, if you say something like the fee could be anywhere between $100 and $5,000, that, that's literally what they said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that doesn't show you understand what it, what it's going to take to use, uh, the, the financial barrier to, to whittle down your game pool, right? Um, mm-hmm. Just doesn't. It just seems like they're still trying to. Um, uh, how do you say it? They're still trying to like. They're still just trying to figure it out, and I think they jumped the gun a little bit. You know, something? maybe maybe they just wanted to let people. Maybe they thought just announcing this would start to uh, slow the trickle of green light, which I've heard that it has. Mm. Like knowing that there's Steam Direct coming has. Has, has helped a little bit, uh, slow down the trickle. But, uh, but I don't know. Like, it just seems very poorly planned, very poorly thought out at the moment. <laughs> like, how, how is, like, how are you going to settle on the fee? Just take that one example. How are you going to settle on, settle on the fee that works both for the, the one man, uh, you know, um, Undertale guy and the, the larger, like, 40 man studio, indie studio, indie quote unquote, indie studio. Like, it's just, there's no one size fit all. They're gonna have to deep dive back into heavy curation. Um, that's just a fact. You have to curate it, right? Here's a question: Do you think Steam has invested much in uh, analytics for the use of their own platform? I- I'm sure they have because they have extremely smart people. Uh, they, I, I believe, they've hired like economists to, you know, to like manage the economies of like Dota and, and Team Fortress and whatnot. So sure, they, they must sure. have I mean, it, for, for, for those right? games, but I mean, but I'm not seeing the results of it is what I'm yeah. saying. You know, especially let's just take like recommendation engine. You know, I, I've, I've worked on recommendation engines in the past. Um, it's not really rocket science, really. Um, and, and the Steam just is consistently one of the worst recommendation engines I encounter across any platform, game or not. <laughs> um, yeah. On a bit of a tangent here, just talking about effective recommendation systems, the best recommendation system I ever ran into doesn't exist anymore, and it was LaunchCast back in the day on uh, one of the right. Yahoo systems, because that, that thing actually introduced me to music that I liked. It could tell that I would like it, and right. like I didn't know I would like it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I, I hear you. Like, one. they're, they're typically very simple. Most recommendations, recommendation simple, uh, systems are very simple. When they get too complicated and marketing speaky, like, I think Pandora is a Pandora that's like, oh, we analyze the beats. That yeah, the, to. the music genome Come project. Come on. I, I can tell you, like, the most recommendation systems are really just, um. People who like this at, also like at, this. Well, they look, yeah, they look at similarity of profiling. They segment you by, by your similar genre appreciation. Um, and then they they do something called factor analysis that basically pulls out some of the major factors, like, let's say, length or BPM speed or, 
uh, genre or uh, blah 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 um, that sort of fit your profile, and then they you know com- they, it's just a matter of iterative process of continuing to to feed you new suggestions based on it, and then you know you update based on what what actually you bite on, whether you purchase or not, how long you spend on it, yada yada. Mm-hmm. Um, in a nutshell, that's what it is. Obviously, there's like deeper mathematics to it, but um, it's not that complicated. Um, but when I see it's either that approach, which is more um, the analytics driven way, or there's the more curation driven way. So, you know, if I if I could suggest something, it would be like maybe Steam's going about it completely wrong. I would suggest they instead build a almost like Reddit community kind of situation where you um, deputize. Uh, specific users to become like moderators of genres that then go uh, self-curate first before surfacing it to the um, valve level uh, curation. I think that would actually be their most effective way mm. of maintaining a democratic publishing platform while still having curation. So, right? I, okay, I, I, I see where you're going for it there. Um Oddly enough, that goes against some of what we were talking about, how um, uh, Valve is very flat in its structure. But yes. uh, the, the yes. other question that comes yes. from that oh. is, with that kind of a system, how would you incentivize the users to uh, <clears throat> participate and be engaged in that system? Um, I mean, there's definitely ways to do it. I, but, you know, without answering, I'm trying to avoid your question because I think, <laughs> like, you really don't need to. I think um, you look at any other like massive forum, you know, Reddit size forum, and people do it because of their interests, mm-hmm. and you actually want that. That's the best kind of uh, passion that you can get out of people. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you can have incentive structures within. I think you have to be very careful with that. There's legal ramifications of incentivization where if if, if, if it looks like they're working for you, then you have to pay them, mm-hmm. right? I think we've talked about this before, but like, you know, you can't just like, oh, everybody, I'm going to crowdsource our game ideas, you know, <laughs> and then you're, you as a developer actually have to pay people, you know, mm-hmm. so, uh, um, so it has to be on their own goodwill to do it, right? You can have like prestige, uh, incentive, incentives or something like that, badges and that kind of shit. Huh. But ultimately, I think people will want to do it. If you, if you empower people and deputize people to influence the curation, they will, it will come. Okay. I, it's it's a little interesting you mentioned that because that sounds a little bit not exactly like but a little bit like the explorer's idea um although the the sure. actual effect of it would would come about a bit differently yeah it it is like the explorer's idea on paper but it has a lot to do with where the power in the community lies uh how you market this this pipeline um you know it, everything comes down to your tone and your attitude uh, towards publishing, mm-hmm. right? If Explorers is like an add-on feature, you're not really telling your community that they've been deputized to, 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 you know, be the, the sub-curators. So sub-curators. you want, you want like... Formal, formal. Yeah. So it would be like you would have formal curation of your deputized curators. Right, right. Okay. I, I, you know, obviously that wouldn't be like an exclusive path, but I think that that would be a very strong path still in line with the democratic um, element of, of Steam publishing. Yeah. But well, I think this always just comes back to I don't see anything in Steam Direct that addresses their current problems of, uh, you know, garbage being brigaded in mm-hmm. unless they come up with like a $5,000 or more fee, 
but even that's recoupable. So you're just going to have people crowdsource, you know, $5,000 in costs until they think they can recoup that. You know, it doesn't really change any, anything to have, even have that, that cost barrier. You're just making it worse for, um, worse for people. Hmm. I did see one thing. I don't remember the numbers exactly off the top of my hmm. head, but someone said it was something close to of 4,500 games only like 1500 or 1700 made $15,000. Um, I believe they said there have been a hundred games that have made a million or more. That one, th- yeah, I, that Something was like another that. number that came out of it. But I mean, that does, that's meaningless when you're pushing out a, a hundred or more games every two weeks, right? Well, yeah. And, and so the point of what I was saying was, you know, you're talking about the, the impact of a $5,000 you know, we'll we'll argue from that end here. The yeah. five thousand uh, dollars entrance fee, or right. however you want to call it, licensing fee, something. Um, curation fee. It's like a curate it's like a, something. Yeah. But uh, that was a. Uh, th- there would be um, a significant chunk of the games that were represented in that observation that probably would not have made that initial fee back. No. Yeah. Absolutely not. Uh, I, I, the profitability of of Steam indie games is garbage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Partially kind of, because there's so much dream. garbage out there, so it's... That that too, but I don't think that putting that fee is what's going to filter out the garbage, right? What you're really doing is people who are delusional about making their indie games are still going to try to do it, but be, be $5,000 in the hole. Mm-hmm. Again, we're using $5,000 as the upper end. We don't yeah. know what the real fee is, but I'm just saying, like, it... It sounds like they want it to be higher than the hundred dollars that it is right now, and I'm and I don't believe there's an amount that necessarily keeps people out in the right way. Mm-hmm. Because you're going to have a uh, such a wide range of people trying to get in. Yes, yes. Yeah. You still will have people trying to get in, and they're going to find other ways to game the system to get their five thousand dollars or whatever that amount is to get in. And at the same time, you're gonna have the triple A's who don't give a fuck. They're just gonna, they, they already have money or startup cash or whatever, and they're just gonna walk right through that 5,000 barrier. So really, all you're doing is hurting the most, the, the largest base of independent developers you care about from which your gems came from. Mm-hmm. First that's place. An, that's an interesting point there. The, the, essentially the argument that, uh, fees like this hurt your, uh, bottom tier or your smallest tier. I should say bottom implies quality and I mean size. Right. Huh. Right. And, 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 and uh, like my feeling from a very like unproven holistic view is that, uh, it is this bottom tier and their willingness to put out garbage that sort of forces the higher tier games to be better. Right. Because as, as long as there's this engine of content that you need to compete with, Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, every little glimpse of brilliance in these garbage games at the bottom is something that the games at, at the top are going to have to surmount or do better or incorporate or whatever. Right. So as a whole, as the ecosystem as a whole gets better so long as there is this, uh, this, uh, this huge garbage foundation of creativity. Okay. Does that make sense? Think of it like a yeah. giant evolution pool. Right, a giant gene pool, you know. Mm-hmm. So if you kill that off, then you risk entering this place where uh, you monopolize the genres, and they don't need to be innovative 
because they don't need to comp- compete with uh, Joe Schmo in his garage who has only one good idea. They don't need to compete with that anymore. So they can just put out whatever. And some of these genres are not big enough for that, right? Yeah. I think um I think in general, uh just speaking to the curated versus organic, I suppose you could call it approach. Mm-hmm. Um in that sense, I I know that one of the comments from uh uh Valve was that they don't want to be manually curating everything because they want to be able to be surprised. Uh, I, I, I believe, for example, the, oh, yes. what's it called? The, the, um, Hatoful Boyfriend. Yes, right. What really took them off guard and they were very surprised. And so I, they, they want to see, uh, interesting new things like that. But on top of it, as a, a more, on a more conceptual level. Yeah. I, I recall that there was early on, there was, Wikipedia and I forget what the other one was called, but there was, uh, um, an alternative that was intended to be, you could only, uh, contribute or edit if you were a curated and approved expert on the topic. Right. And because it had that bottleneck, uh, Wikipedia very, very quickly became so much larger and therefore drew so much more attention and therefore drew up so much more interest in refining the content that, uh, that a- intended, like, expert curated one wound up just falling by the wayside. And I can see that sort of approach or that sort of thought process here affecting the, uh, decisions that I yes. was making. Yes, but I, I want to. So I'll take this opportunity to point out something um, that I think is worth recognizing, and that is these two. These two different approaches. Let's say one is high curation, one is high, highly grassroots, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they both can work, but they work. They they have different requirements to work. Um, I'm not necessarily preferable to one or the other, but let's talk about um, let's talk about Android versus uh, Apple as a good example of. Uh, a place where both systems have worked, mm-hmm. uh, but they've figured out why they work for for each system respectively. So, Android uh, publishing. Uh, I'm going into mobile land here. Mm-hmm. Android publishing is quite democratic, right? There's no very strong submission requirements. You submit whatever the, whatever the hell you want. Mm-hmm. There's some compliance stuff, but generally it's not very restrictive. There isn't a lot of approval. Um, Mostly, of, you only have to meet some requirements if you're in right. consideration to get featured. Right. And, and in terms of feature consideration, it's mainly, a, a lot of it is, uh, based on metrics. So when we, you know, when we meet with, um, uh, Google, you know, the first thing they want to know is how's it performing? What are the, what, what are your D1, D3, D7, D14 metrics? Uh, what is, you know, what are the marketing statistics? Like, what is the chances of this being successful? compared to everything else. And then that's where you start the conversation. That, that's certainly not where it ends because there's, they're also looking for cool stuff and they care about having platform exclusive stuff, but you got to start with a baseline of metrics. Now, on the other hand, um, Apple is sort of like that flipped over. Yes, they care about metrics as well, but um, Apple over there is more what's called church and state. The, the business people, who go out and seek games for publishing there and work with the developers have very little say in the curation that actually happens 
and the featuring. They're, they're just as in the dark as the developers. It's really funny. Um, and so, uh, all they can do is say, Hey, this is a, a potentially a very good title. We're going to throw it in the pool. They have a secret writer's room of curators who basically look at it and say, does this make Apple look good? Does this show off Apple hardware? Does this make Apple an exciting, unique, uh, uh, brand? The Apple brand rather than, you know, w- whether this product individually is good. Obviously that's considered. I'm just, I'm just emphasizing what their main consideration is. Right. And if it fits, if it hits those buttons, then you're more likely to be featured than just, you know, with analytics over at Google. Um, and it's called church and state because, you know, the, the two, the business side and the curation side never talk or not, not never talk, but the, uh, the business side cannot influence the curation side. They're, they're safe from that because they can make more risky decisions as to what, uh, what is good for the brand. Right. So, so what Valve or Steam lacks is if they want to go this curation route, you need to have a very clear vision for your developers to say, Hey, this is what makes Valve looks good. Try to hit this and you'll have a better chance of, of making it through curation or getting featuring or whatever. And they don't really have that right now. It's, it's, that part is very free for all. Whereas Apple, you have like, I'm not saying it's clear things, requirements to work towards, but you understand inherently that, oh, this thing, I'm trying to help build the Apple empire. Um, and you can work, that's something you can work towards. But with, you know, Steam, it, there, that doesn't really exist. Huh. Interesting food for thought there. Uh, but that kind of makes me, do you think there's any other, um, PC game storefront that actually does have good discoverability, be it Origin or GOG or anything? Uh, well, I mean, those are hard to compare because they just don't have many games. <laughs> well, GOG Origin, has a pretty good... Battle.net, what's that? Go- uh, good old games. Oh, GOG. It? Oh, sorry. I don't, uh, I'm not familiar with, too familiar with GOG. I'm, I'm always impressed they're still around, but I've literally never downloaded the client. Mm. But, um... Yeah, you know, this is when, this is something I always made as an argument, uh, uh, to the origin guys was like, like exclusivity of content is ultimately what drives the platform adoption. And you see that because EA made like origin a requirement for their, their most recent games. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with, um, obviously the same with, uh, Blizzard. Uh, but, you know, filling out the rest of the catalog. Yeah. Like you got to come up with some kind of demographic system, uh, democratic system. And I don't think anyone outside of steam has really figured that out exactly. for all of steam's problems. Nobody else has fi- figured that out. Okay. So that would be uh, just the, um, I suppose the ubiquity of steam as a platform, being able to attract so much content you think is the difference maker for them. Exclusive content. Mm hmm. It's not exclusive in the sense that they they force any kind of publishing agreements. It's exclusive in the sense that, like, for a lot of people, that's the only ecosystem they want to devote their time to publishing in because they're indie and they're small and they don't have the the money or the time, right? Like, Steam is it. Right. It's not like EA is out there going, oh, we'll help you get onto Origin. No, they don't give a fuck. And if they did, they might have a better chance getting Origin adopted to Steam levels. Hmm. Um, that said, though, like origin adoption is pretty good. Um, I can't give numbers, but they were certainly catching up to Steam. But a lot of it was just driven by a very few couple, you know, mega hits like Battlefield or whatever or, or Mass Effect or whatever. 
you know, it's sort of like a forced adoption. I didn't really feel like it was organic at all. Yeah. Well, I definitely, I think, um, you're talking about exclusivity. I can think of one example where probably it's Steam sales would outpace any of its other sales, yet it's on a number of, uh, not necessarily, well, yeah, platforms, but, you know, ways to access it as well. And that's, uh, Artemis, which, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Artemis no, Space Bridge Simulator. Uh-uh. What is uh, that? It's, <laughs> it's a fun kind of co-op multiplayer game. Imagine that uh, you got six computers uh-huh. and imagine each one is a station on the Starship Enterprise. So you've got comms. Oh yeah, I'm looking at it right now. This is hilarious. Yeah. And it's pretty cool, and you can have multiple ships in a game, so you could have up to, you know, like 30 people playing at once, and it will just destroy your network if you're not ready, but it's pretty damn cool. Um, So so here's this question, right? Like, you're going to have a lot of games like Artemis, which are very core niche and don't necessarily even have a genre that they belong to. You're going to have games that are much worse than uh, Artemis that are like you know, super garbage, but have this, like, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? Cultural attache to it. Like, you know, like Hatoful Boyfriend or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the question is, when Valve says we want more quality games, what does quality mean? Hmm. Because for many people, this is quality. The quality is not in the production quality of the game. Uh, it's not in the size of the audience. It's in the, it, it's resonance with them as as very niche gamers, right? Well, one so of the definitely one of the out? one of the problems they have, and and this is something that probably gets wrapped up when people talk about quality, mm-hmm. is people who will really just make uh, some people call them asset flippers. They just take uh, assets yes. that they get from a storefront right. and repackage them slightly and resell them. Sure. Or just copy a game entirely or uh, various other games where, you know, clearly your mechanics are just completely broken or... But, but even then, you know, here, let me challenge you. Even then, um, let's say Flappy Bird, clearly a shit game. But, <laughs> I take, but I take Flappy Bird and I make a Donald Trump, you know, criticizing parody of it. That's very smart and has very funny jokes and is very savvy of the current political situation and the general feeling that everyone has. Or maybe I do about Gamergate or maybe I do about any other hot topic. That's actually quite relevant to the audience. And even though the game itself is shit, um, it's quality in the sense that it contributes culturally. Right. Mm. Right. So it's a satire Flappy Bird game. Well, what's wrong with that? That that is something that should get out. Right. Mm. And the I, I, I would say that the. Uh, uh, point that you're, you're hitting at there really hits to the, f- um, you can't, oh, what's the right way to say this? You can't automate the process no. of determining no. what is quality right. and what isn't. Correct. Correct. You can't automate it because it's entertainment. Mm-hmm. Right? Entertainment is not, um, is not an absolute value. Entertainment <laughs> is a, a gestalt of how it's marketed. Of its timing, more than anything, its timing and the product itself. I can't, I can't define garbage, but I know it when I see it. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the the whole, it sounds kind of like we're we're circling around a point here that the whole crux is 
for everyone involved to be able to trust the pipeline. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm going to pull up the Netflix example again. I think they realized this, that even with their brilliant algorithms uh, recommendation engine, that it's not enough. And so I think they have taken a very different take, and that is they self-publish. Amazon mm -hmm. self-publishes. They use their, their massive money. They find developers, or in their case, uh, movie makers, celebrities, uh, directors who haven't got a, a voice because um, their voice is too unique for Hollywood. And uh, and they give them like a blank check. I'm not saying you have to give people blank checks, but you know what I mean? Like they're giving them complete creative freedom to go make stuff. And guess what? They're going to be the next great publishers of all content. And the movie industry is going to fall to the wayside because of it. Um, and they have the analytics to back it up. Um, so like, I don't know. Maybe it's again the, the flat uh, structure you talk about at Valve, but I don't know why they don't realize that you just can't automate this stuff, especially how bad their automation is already. <laughs> I'm sorry, I got a little distracted uh, imagining that Netflix was handing indie movie makers copies of the Macaulay Culkin movie blank check and saying, do something with this. <laughs> don't, don't joke, that might actually happen. Who knows, man? <laughs> They're gonna, they're gonna, they've done so many remakes, Netflix original remakes. <laughs> but, um, okay, one point that I wanted to, to make and, and get back to is, um, uh, talking about Artemis. That's a game that most people would probably consider as exclusive to Steam, but yeah. the guy behind it, and it's one, one guy who makes the game, really. Um, he also sells it directly to people through his website. It's also available on yeah. iTunes and and Google Play stores. Right. So I, it, that's that's one of those things where, you know, perhaps your ideal uh, user experiences through Steam because you know Steam does offer other you know community you know messaging and so forth mm -hmm. uh, and support and being able to get it on other machines or what have you. Uh, it, the pricing structure might be a bit different there too, but. You know, it's it's just an example of you can have these features on Steam. It can be seen as exclusive, but it's not contractually exclusive. You can still, as a developer, go to other portals. Yeah, you can. But again, like every time you do that, there's a cost on the developer to port it to a different platform, to support another platform. That's a lot of work. You know, some of my favorite games are are very easily portable or have started even porting, but are, are years later still haven't been ported from mobile to PC or PC to mobile, vice versa. Like a good example is like Dungeon, uh, Darkest Dungeon, right? Mm. That is an absolute veritable hit. They're done with the game. They have built um, a mobile interface, and they still haven't had the time to port it over. Why? It's because it, there's just this cost. There's just so much technical cost to yeah. doing so. No, and, right. and not everyone can do it. Yeah, maybe Artemis can do it. Maybe their engine, maybe the game and their engine was built from the bottom up to to be that way. But there's always a cost, and it's not always easy. Yeah, even if you're using tools that are supposed to make it easy, it's not right. just a push like Unity to cross publish. I mean, we have it's, experience. Yeah, it's not even it's not necessarily it's not even <laughs> easy to switch it from Android to iOS. Oh, oh no. Oh god, no. No, it's not certainly not just pressing a button. The technical requirements are so different. Um, <laughs> the audience is different. Featuring considerations are different. Like I said, like the the two different um 
platforms are looking for different things for curation. Oh, if you want to get to the business side, and then you also start realizing that uh, uh, different regions, the the uh, split between iOS and Android is going to be different, not just in terms of uh, oh yeah no, market totally, market yeah. penetration, oh, but God. also the patterns of localization is different. Yeah, oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, everything. Oh, um, quick yeah. quick answer to your question before I just thought of something. You you're saying like what other super grassrootsy platform exists out there? I uh-huh. just thought of one. Um, itch.io is a is another huh. place. It has a crap ton of garbage, but you also <laughs> have some very high uh, monetizing games that have come out of that garbage, like Slither.io. The whole IO. Oh, uh, really? Those all came from yeah. the same place. That's a platform. Oh, a I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I know. I didn't know this until recently either. It's a completely open platform with um, infrastructure to help you publish uh, uh, an online game. Like it, it's fundamentally built for you to make massive multiplayer uh, <laughs> garbage massively multiplayer garbage there you go with uh mmog so, uh, so that's um, where agar.io and slither.io came from that, huh? that's why they pump them out so fast it's because they just provide this platform for you to develop off of that instantly uh gives you uh, access to all these you know we all know like publishing something massively multiplayer is an incredible technical challenge yeah uh, and they just give it to you and it's an open platform publish what you want and um and yeah, so that's another place to look at. Um, I don't Their know. Their platform must run pretty efficient. I don't, I don't know. I don't know anything yeah. about it, but uh, I don't think like that platform is broad enough to support the diversity of of games that obviously exists elsewhere. But um, as a mini ecosystem of a completely democratic development, that something like that does exist. Uh, interesting. Well, uh. I think we've gone over this topic pretty well, unless there's anything else you wanted to add, but it seems like it boils down to, uh, we're, we're hopeful, but you're certainly skeptical about the effect of the explorers and, uh, 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 and their impact on Steam Direct as a replacement for Steam Greenlight. Yeah. But, uh, um, there's always going to be those weird, you know, do, how do you classify this that might, just require some more direct manual approval process right right because it's art guess what games are art yep so Uh, so i don't know like are they saying that they're going to curate it is that is that what they're i mean they're going to take out voting as a way of surfacing stuff right yeah um i i guess it it seems like their whole barrier to entry is just going to be the fee and try to make the um uh, algorithm more aggressive <laughs> at burying bad stuff that gets through. I don't, I, I can't see that working. Hmm. All, all I see is they'll keep raising the price to try to filter stuff out and it won't work, won't work, won't work. And suddenly the price will be too high when no one wants to develop and then hmm. and it will crash from it. Like there's no real middle ground that a one size fits all solution. Like I said. Huh. Well, only time will tell. I, I'm sure if they got to, I have, I shouldn't say I'm sure because I don't know, but yeah. uh, I am of the opinion that if they were to do that and they kept increasing the, the <clears throat> price until their, um, you know, garage developer stream dried up, they uh-huh. would want to change that again because they, what I, it very much appears they don't want to limit it to just a, a trickle because of their bandwidth problems and they don't want it to just be a, a floodgate of, you know, terrible asset flips, cynical attempts at right. 
making dribs and traps. That's the one thing that I don't quite get. It seems like there's a whole lot of effort that got put into making stuff that wouldn't have very good returns. Yeah. Wait. And what are you speaking of exactly? Oh, like the the whole uh, like digital homicide story where you're just making these terrible asset flip games and no one's going to buy these things. And yeah, but if you, you know, want to go down thing. a rabbit hole, there's the whole trading card market. I, I don't I'm telling you, like, I don't think most uh, indie developers have an acute sense of what works business wise. They're just <laughs> trading, right. They just want to they want to get it out of their system. Hmm. You know, when we talk about uh, when we talk about art, it, art is something where when it's genuine, um, you don't have a choice. It just makes you create it. You're uh-huh. driven to create something. It's not like you're thinking it through. And so that's how a lot of these developers get themselves, indie developers get themselves into trouble. Even large developers, even big developers get themselves into trouble with these, these aspirations of what they think their product is, as opposed to some grounded reality of, of as to how it actually will perform and what your actual market is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's like a nonstop uh, gravy train of confirmation bias. It's <laughs> <is>, right? <laughs> oh. Oh, Jesus. I gotta, oh, I gotta, I got, hold on. I gotta write that down. <laughs> a nonstop gravy train of confirmation bias. No, I, 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 I have to, I have to add that to the list of things, uh, uh, recorded for intro clips. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry to sound so cynical. It's kind of sad to put it that way, but, you know, uh, having, having been in this industry for so long, that's, everyone is just so optimistic about things and so unrealistic about, um, performance, you know? They, they, oh, yeah. I, and that's, that's one of the funny things is if you could be right 95% plus of the time, if someone asks you if this game is going to succeed or not, and you just say no to everything. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and the worst of the worst of it is when you are successful, if you're that one in a million, a lottery winner that that, you know, that exploded off your shit game, you suddenly think that uh, you did something brilliant to do it. Right. That's that's human nature. I was at a monetization conference where uh, I'm sorry to throw these guys under the bus, but like like King, is that, is that are they King or King dot com? Um... Candy Crush guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they had like one of their lead designers, uh, at this monetization conference to talk about, you know, monetization. And it was the most inane, uh, talk I've ever heard. Like, you know, he, he couldn't, he couldn't, um, articulate why the game was successful. Uh, he, he was just like, Oh, you know, we did the brilliant stuff like changing this button to a darker shade of red and making this pop more and just vague, vague, useless things. <laughs> that it you just iterated and you also got super fucking lucky. That's that's the bottom line. And you don't know why. You don't know the fundamentals of why that got you uh, the success you did, even though you hit all the things that you know make a successful game. But mm. you didn't actually um, uh, intentionally or, or 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 not not intentionally, but like you know you didn't pre-plan all these things. Like right. they're just things you discovered along the way. They right. they happened upon a successful formula rather than crafting that successful right. formula. Right. Was and the impression again, that you got. Again, timing. 
you know, timing, timing, timing. In fact, uh, I, re- I read this one article where they were talking about they did an anal- analysis with this guy who was a, a huge startup founder, uh, founded, I don't know, God knows how many successful startups. And he did his, oh, sorry, he did his own analysis where he took all the startups he had. It was, it was like a couple hundred. Um, and, uh, and he tried to like rate each one based on like what was good about this, uh, the, these startups, you know, personnel, idea, uh, R and D, uh, money, et cetera, et cetera. And he, and he, and he found like the single most, uh, successful thing that tied them was the timing. And uh-huh. I tend to believe that, like, you know, uh, you could have the best thing in the world, but if the world's not ready for it, it's not going to be successful. Yeah. Right. Or, or you come in with, you know, the best, if I came in with wow, number two, I beat wow in every single way possible. But WoW's already out there. Yeah, you're too late. You know, uh, that's why all these other MMOs can't make it. So timing is everything. Yeah, and you can't take too much credit of that. Some of that is just luck. No, that's true. That's true. I mean, you you can put some effort into trying to make the timing work, yeah. but there's yeah. there are many uh, factors in there that are outside of your control. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in my opinion, it's you know, if you've launched and it's not successful and you did everything right. Don't try to rationalize, oh, you know, I just need to fix this feature or I just hit the wrong uh, target audience. Or if your timing is just wrong, you kind of, in my opinion, you should just, just call it quits, move on to your next thing. It, you're never going to fix timing with with other features, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm saying this in a situation where you have done everything right. Um, sometimes there's not much more else you can do. That's just life. Oh, my. Well, this uh, this this conversation has gotten a little uh, uh, free range. Cynical? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I hey, I'm in I'm in testing. I don't mind cynicism. Cynicism <laughs> tends to be where uh, some truth lay. Right, right. Uh, but uh, you mentioned localization, which which uh, reminded me of a, a sort of side topic that I, I wanted to hit on. Have you heard about this guy who? insisted that his name be taken off of credits for a game because of a translation thing what why uh and this uh i'm not going to get any of the names involved in in the game or the company Mm -hmm. but uh he he um he's apparently one of those translators who is a bit of a purist and to my uh opinion uh to a fault like Missing the point kind of a purist. Oh, yeah, totally. Where there was, um, I'll see if I can find uh, some details while I'm describing it here. But uh, a game getting translated in the Japanese, there was a storefront or a sign that was meant to be a reference to an existing company called something like NKK Switches. So -hmm. they changed the sign to be something similar, Mm -hmm. KKK Witches. Okay. And bad decisions. <laughs> and he wanted to keep it in there because he thought the shock value was funny. Uh-huh. No. And and didn't want to change he he's someone who believes that you know you just keep everything to the letter. <laughs> <laughs> Despite the fact that when the developer, not not even the publisher, it wasn't a publisher cynical thing. When the developer was informed of what that means to an American uh, audience. They say, "Oh I, no, we didn't want to do that. Change it. Change it." Yes. 
So, yeah, it's it's strange. Hold on, I got it. it was um, <laughs> yeah, the game was Akiba's Beat. The studio was Acquire. Uh, it'll be out in North America next month. X Seed is handling publishing and localization. Akiba Beat. Oh, I see it. Yeah. Yeah. And so they changed the name to ACQ, which is. Yeah, you know, the, the note here for everybody out there is that if you haven't done localization, it is not just text. Nope. And nope, the nope, more nope. culturally, like, in, you know, the more culturally relevant, not relevant, um, culturally rich your game is, the more potential you have of hitting localization landmines. <laughs> like that. Oh yeah, there was, um, and it's and it's not just in the game. I believe I've told the story before, but there was one time where uh, I happened to see someone write something about a game. It was going to be a marketing thing that it, it mentioned something about starting your crusade or something like that. And I ran <laughs> down the hallway and I said, no, don't do that. Starting your jihad. <laughs> <laughs> That 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 is not a good phrase to use unless your game is actually a historical thing. Yeah, there was this. Uh, it was revealed. It wasn't revealed. Like people people caught onto it quite quickly. But early on, when Riot was bought by Tencent and then they went to go publish uh, League of Legends in China, people found out that all the splash art had basically been whitewashed. Mm. So like Karma, I believe, who's the the the, the black chick character. Like she was literally was like, you know, 20% the darkness that she was before. It was just like complete whitewashed in order to make her appealing to that, to that culture. And I, you know, I'm sure that they were, uh, ethnically, morally un, un, unsettled about that decision, you know? So, you know, then it comes like, is this a business decision or, or do you, or do you want, you know, do you want to stick to your guns or, or not? But that kind of thing happens. It happens all the time. Yeah. Right. Oh boy, that's um, yeah. I've talked about localization here before. I'm sure examples like this will come up again, but it's it's pretty much always when this stuff, when localization stuff becomes news, it's usually one of these weird purists who say you can't change anything. Everything has to be the exact text. And right, I'm sorry guys, but the developers don't want it that way. Games and text. And all of these experiences that are crafted are done so to evoke some feeling. And feelings exist within a cultural context. The, the guy you were talking you about used to evoke this. Hmm? Yeah. Uh, so he's a bat. So, well, that's a group we should never work with. Then. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, even no. like when you look for localization companies, you want to find people who are tuned to the type of product you're making. So I, game localization is quite different than other types of localization right? yeah i i have never worked with this group and i probably will never work with this Ooh. group and if i ever did work with a group i would uh, if Be i was ever working on something that was narratively significant i would point out that yes this this translation should be culturally adapted right it's like i don't i don't want translators that are conversationally uh, uh familiar with the language i don't even want them to be fluid with the la fluent fluid with the language fluent with the language i want them to actually understand the culture of the place we're localizing to yes and, and the context in the game of of what it was supposed to mean yes yeah uh that's why a lot i happen to understand that a lot of jokes in japanese games 
just don't translate properly. Oh, jokes are the worst. Jokes don't translate well. Anything jokes and political stuff do not uh-huh. translate well. That's um, uh, apparently puns are very pervasive in Japanese, and so you try to make a play on like if For if sure. you present something that's a pun in Japanese and you simply translate the text or try to keep it pure in that sense when you translate it to English. Yeah. It, it's going to be gibberish. Yeah, no, it, it's true. It's not just Japanese. Um, a lot of Asian languages. I speak Chinese, and, and the majority of jokes in there is also more pun-oriented, mm-hmm. just because of the, the 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 nature of the language is is different, right? They're they're more homogenous language than English, mm. right? Because English is you know. Uh, Welsh and German and Old English. Anglo, and English. Uh, yeah, the Anglo's, the Anglo-Saxons, and, and every other, um, every and other. Latin. A huge mishmash. I mean, when 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 my when I first met my wife and she came over from Asia, like she did not get American stand-up at all. <laughs> it just, it didn't. That those kind of jokes didn't mean anything to her because they're, you know, a they're super self-referential within the American culture, but b they're just a different style of comedy than than they're used to like mm. she she still prefers more like physical comedy visual gags uh puns things like that um yeah all right oh boy definitely definitely weird weird and wacky stuff and i still expect to be getting a lot more of these odd translation things in yeah. the future Boy, yeah, you should. Have, you you should at some point you should have a whole show about localization. <laughs> I I think I did, or I wrote an article. One of the well, two. I it, the topics come up before. Oh okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, I, I I it was an article. I wrote an article because it was hitting on. I remember now. It was that um the lady from the Nintendo Treehouse that the, oh this is really freaking weird some of the details but. There was like a harassment campaign against her because she was seen as a scapegoat for a Japanese game getting a boob slider taken out or something like that. It was weird. This is like when people did that with Mass Effect. The the lady who one of the ladies who animated, they were like, "Oh, she's responsible for all the shit animation in Mass Effect." And she wasn't uh, associated with it. No, she no, she was just one of the many animators. Um, also, technically speaking, like it, it wasn't her animations that were. Yeah, it wasn't animation that was wrong. There's a lot of other stuff around the execution of it, the the uh, the way that they combine the permutations of animation clips. Um, there's a lot of procedural stuff. There's a lot of mocap problems. Like it, there's a it's a whole ecosystem of problems that culminates into Mass Effect animation is bad. It's mm-hmm. not oh I didn't know how to move a hand from the left to the right. It's not it's not like that. Yeah. So to blame it on any one person it isn't just stupid, but She's just an animator. She wasn't even like the AD, the art director, who would have for the final say. And if anyone, anything, he would be blamed for it. You know what I mean? Like it, none of it made sense how people uh, glom onto uh, obvious problems and pick like specific people to blame. Like video game development just doesn't work that way. You know, it's yeah. infinitely complex as we as we've talked about before, and it's not simply, you know, no no one. It's very hard for one person uh, to to ruin the aesthetic of an entire game short of being the art director or creative directors themselves you know mm. like everyone's just a cog yeah. <laughs> all right sorry getting too cynical there <laughs> you're a vital part of game development <laughs> no everyone's a vital part of game development it's but 
every cog is important. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know. <laughs> I, it's even worse in film because, you know, I, I was in film for a little bit and in film is so much worse. It's like, oh, you know, I spent, you know, my my year working on this uh, movie for these four seconds of the film. <laughs> <laughs> And not just these four seconds. Uh, these four seconds, the shadow in the back on the character in the back, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that. Oh, <laughs> like it's boy. assembly line of creative output. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've heard of people working for months on getting the crowd animations to look organic and so forth. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... For me, the choice between, you know, games and film came to this uh, very interesting question someone at Pixar asked me. He was like, well, you know, ultimately, do you want to, uh, do you want to be, uh, do you want to make something great or do you want to be part of something great? Right. And, and for me, it was make something great. And that means like coming into the game world and wearing many hats on a smaller project. Right. But there, it's a perfectly valid, uh, desire to say, oh, I want to, uh, be part of something great. Like I want to be, you know, the the fifth orc in Lord of the Rings, the move the movie series, right? Like, yeah, sure, that's fine too. Um, but you have to be really clear with yourself which of those you're most I, interested in and what you'll be happy about. I think that's actually a very valid uh, question. Uh, a, a bit of uh, pointed introspection. Right. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Well, I think this was a pretty interesting conversation. Yeah. Uh, as usual at the end of the show, uh, I will ask if you have any interesting anecdotes or, uh, war stories that you would like to share. Yeah, sure. You know, um, so, you know, we're on this topic of indie stuff, right? Yeah. And I, I figure like probably a lot of your viewers or your, sorry, your listeners, um, are folks who, you know, out there who want to get into uh, games and recently, you know, I've had to talk to some uh, j- just as a favor, talk to some uh, parent, some friends, kids about like oh, what it takes to get into the industry. And I just want to give a little um, piece about how I got into the industry. Sure. And so there's a lot. I The thing I want to say to people out there is like there's a lot of ways of getting in. It's not just going through school. It's not just like putting together demo reels um, for myself, you know, um, uh, throughout school, there was no like formal, formal art academy kind of education system for, for developing games. It was just, you know, uh, download Unreal, make some levels, you know, show them off. You know, I, at one point I remember like the, on, on GameCube, the Tony Hawk game had like a level editor and I actually made a level, recorded that, um, and made it part of my demo reel, mm-hmm. uh, using the in-game editor. And then, you know, and a lot of it is just, uh, persistence. So, you know, when I got my first design job, it was, you know, the interview didn't go well. I've, ne- I've never done a game interview before, but then, you know, I followed up. It's about following up and caring, right? You follow up, you, you know, say, oh, you know what? I made these mistakes in my interview. I'd like to show you like something different. I like to, I, I like to, I've, I've spent some time thinking about it and, and I want to mm-hmm. resubmit this part of it. Like, you know, be really gung ho about things like that. I, I mean, I still get interviews with people who like come in and, you know, we asked a very specific question and that they didn't even bother to research the, the question that we, we asked them. Like, you're coming in for an interview and you don't even know the subject matter or the game we wanted you to play before you came in to talk to us. Like, that, that's not caring, right? And, um, and then from there, like, you know, I, to cross over into producership, uh, at, um, I was doing something really different at the time. I wanted to grow, 
um, my career, but I didn't know how to do it without uh, working on better games. So I started writing. Um, I put out like a, a, an, a, an article about how um, research on happiness uh, relates to uh, game design. And this was actually featured in Gama Sutra. I did a piece for Gama Sutra back in the day. Um, you know, when I look back on it now, like it was a very light article in terms of um, content, but uh, it certainly was a different perspective at the time. It caught the attention of some folks at um, and then I basically got invited to join uh, um, to to cross over to join the team there. Um, so my, my point of all this is, you know, there's a lot of different ways to get into get into the industry. Um, and really, it's about what you've done rather than what you know, in my opinion. So, you know, some of the best advice I give to the kids that I talk to is like, you know what, like, if you, you can't, if you can't make a game right now, that's fine. Go find like a, a, a mod and jump on that mod and help them out. You know, contribute your skills wherever. And in fact, uh, one of my first, uh, one of the, the, the first uh, game jobs I got was um, helping out on the aforementioned mod. Right. And I didn't do all that much, but um, I did enough where, you know, I had something to show on my reel. This is a real game. And um, and that team went on to get incorporated into Valve. So, you know, the guys I work with are now at Valve. So like it's a small world. And uh, you, if you think of everybody out in the in the in the mod development world as your potential colleagues, um, you know, they, they're all part of this network that, that you may be part of. So it's really just about getting active and, and doing stuff and just getting stuff done. And not worrying too much about, oh, I don't have this experience or I don't have this education or this skill. It doesn't, that doesn't matter so much as the gung-ho spirit of, of creating shit, you know, cause games ultimately is still very gung-ho, very grassroots. And those are still the values that, uh, I think now on the other side, when we're hiring that we look for, we just look for people who are gung-ho and self-starters, right? Hmm. Yeah. That's, um, a lot of good advice there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, you know, there's no single way. All I can say is don't put yourself through a place where you incur a tremendous amount of debt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, well, one thing I had to, to add to that is, is yeah. you're, you're talking about it's a small world. Yeah. The, the games industry is surprisingly a lot smaller than, than you mm -hmm. would think looking at it from the outside. You keep running into the same faces. And, oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. Don't burn. Yes, man. Yeah. The uh, what the way I was going to put it was uh you should remember to be nice to the people you see on the way up. They're the same people you're going to see on the way down. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yep. And uh yeah, if if you're a really bad boss, uh people aren't going to want to work for you. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean that's the that's the truism of of any job, right? That people leave because they're uh, of their bosses more than other reason. And it's certainly true for me. I, 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 my loyalty has always been to my managers. I've been lucky to have great managers. If I have another piece of advice to people out there is, uh, follow people who will uh, fight for you mm. because, yeah. because, uh, and, and when you find those people, be their right hand man, do everything for them, sacrifice for them, not for the company, mm. do it for them, for your managers. Make them look good because at the end of the day, they're the ones with the power to bring you up in the company. And guess what? If the company's bad and they leave, guess who brings you and gives you opportunities elsewhere? Yep. So 
Find yes. people who are worthy and then be super loyal to them. That that exact thing has happened to me. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Oy. Okay. Well, uh, thanks I, uh, Thanks for coming to yeah, talk about all fun. this stuff today. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so for anybody out there who would like to hear us talk about anything here on Behind the Line Radio or see me write about on the Behind the Line article series, you can always get in touch with me at kinetic at enthusiacs.com. That's K-Y-N-E-T-Y-K at enthusiacs.com. Or follow me on Twitter at kineticnose. See you all next time, everybody. Behind the Line Radio is presented by Enthusiacs.com. For more podcasts, Let's Plays, articles, videos, reviews, and more, visit us at Enthusiacs.com. Also, send us a comment on Twitter at Enthusiacs. View us on YouTube, channel Enthusiacs, and like us on Facebook.